The following conversation with Bill Lichtenstein, director of the film WBCN and the American Revolution, aired on October 11, 2019, on the Radical Songbook on KPOV 88.9 FM High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. The Radical Songbook is hosted by Michael Funky. It is a two-hour show highlighting the role that music plays in social justice and protest, and it airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Bill uh, Lichtenstein, is that how you pronounce your last name? That's fine, yes. Okay. <laughs> All right, great. So it's really great to have you here in the studio, and I know that uh, the film that we're going to be talking about that you produced and directed, WBCN and the American Revolution, is actually playing right at this very moment. At this very moment. I walked out <laughs> as the as the opening credits were running and came straight to tell you about it. <laughs> and you're going to be, and it'll be playing tomorrow at 3.30. Uh, that's right. It's uh, the Regal Old Mill at uh, 3.30. Yeah. There's still uh, some tickets available online at the there are Film still? Festival. Yeah. Okay, but it is, it, it's closing up? The, 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 uh, they sold out. The, the show today was sold out, and oh, tomorrow great. I hear is selling out. But as people probably know, you can get a pass for the festival, but you can also get individual tickets for any of the films right. they're showing, and they can buy them for this right. as well. Including. Right. Rich, have you gotten your ticket? I, I took your advice, and I got one last night. Right oh, on. great. Yeah, well, we'll Catherine and I have. Yeah, we're. Uh, I'm very <clears> excited <throat> about this. I did not grow up in Boston. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. So for me, it was KSAN. Sure. You know, and that was the, the underground or freeform radio station. But you were part of, and this film, why don't you first tell us a little about the film, and then I got want to ask you a few questions about it. But the film is called WBCN and the American Revolution. Yes, and it looks at uh, that era of radio and the profound impact it had both on, on radio and, and media in general, but also the spillover uh, to the events of the 60s, the tremendous political, social, cultural events that took place. So it's really the story of the station overlaying uh, the events from about 1968 to 1974. Yeah, and, and that was a very... Um there was so much going on in the late '60s and, and and early '70s, and so it's a it's a feature length film. Yep. And um, you, as I understand it, you started at WBCN at the age of fourteen. Fourteen. Yes. The what? woman who hired me today says, I, "I you told me you must have told me you were sixteen because I wouldn't have hired you knowing you were fourteen. But were, yes, was it a paying gig or were you? An no, in, it was interesting. I was in an alternative intern. educational program in Newton, Massachusetts, and they said everybody needed one day a week to go get a volunteer job. And the station had just come on the air, and I was an, as we all were, avid, you know, avid listener. And so I called and said, "Can can I come there and volunteer and help?" Or and they had just started uh, this thing called the listener line, which was really the Google of its time. It was call this number for anything. If you need a ride, bad acid trip, best pizza in Boston, we will give you the answer or tell you where to find it. Uh And it was staffed largely by uh, volunteers, by kids who who had a big shelf of reference books. So so if I was... (laughs) So so if I was suffering a bad acid trip, I'd call and I'd be talking to you, a 14-year-old, about... Yeah, no, they would tell us, just keep them talking <laughs> and tell them everything's going to be okay. And, and then it's a point you to say, well, my dad's picking me up downstairs, so I'll introduce you to the next person who you can <laughs> speak with. But what, what happened was, as you can imagine, the station, um, one of the things that BCN did, the KCN did as well, was, uh, and we say this in the film, it really saw 
radio more as a relationship with its listeners than a performance. And so instinctively, there were 300,000 college kids in Boston. There was this interaction with the station via the phones, and it got to the point where whoever was on the air couldn't manage all the phone calls and, you know, I need help with this. Or, and so they set up this listener line that, that endured for a long time. So what did your parents think of this gig? They thought it was great. I found out after I had started there, my dad did a jazz uh, show in college at UMass. And uh, they, they were tall. And I, it, it then spilled over to a news. Uh, a, I was actually going on covering news. And then I had my own radio show uh, starting at age 15 um, all night Saturday night. And they would drop me off and pick me up because I was well before I was old enough to drive. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing to yeah. me. That is amazing. You know, I mean, I had to, you know, I was already away from my parents' house by the time Kaysan, Kaysan uh, happened, started happening in the Bay Area. But yeah, my parents would have never allowed me to do anything <laughs> like that. And it's my understanding that this radio station was so popular. There's stories of people who say you could just literally walk yeah through boston and you could hear it without having a radio because so many people were playing it and it was blasting out of well it it grew out of and it's an interesting story there was a guy who came to go to harvard law school named ray reapin uh and he was aware of what was going on at ksan in in new york with wnew where they were playing rock music on fm which was a new uh format um, but he, at that point, owned this club called the Boston Tea Party and saw all these amazing artists coming through there, the Who and Led Zeppelin and all the great blues artists, B.B. King and John Lee Hooker and, and Muddy Waters. Um, and yet you couldn't hear any of it on the radio. Right. And so he not only sort of emulated what had started with KSAN and NEW, but he then went out and found these college kids to be on the air and created the sound of conversational tone, only eight commercials an hour, and and they were very selective about what ads they would take. They turned down a lot of advertising because it was either jingles or... And so this really resonated uh, with students in Boston who would take to putting their speakers out the window and turning it up. And you could literally, between cars and speakers, you know, around the dorms uh, throughout the city, you could walk from one end of Boston to one end of Cambridge, as somebody says in the film, and hear the station the whole way without having a radio. That's amazing. And so you did. You ended up doing some news, you said. Yes. Did you work with Danny Schechter? I worked. He, well, the, the way it happened is fascinating. I was uh, on the listener line after a month or two, and Danny Schechter had just started there. Uh, and there was a demonstration about the murder of Fred Hampton, Black Panther in Chicago, up the street at the police station, which he didn't have time to cover. So he handed me one of those old Sony uh, tape recorders with the piano key buttons. He handed me a tape recorder and said, go two blocks up Stewart Street where the police station is. Uh, and then he gave me the perfect question for a 14-year-old who had never done an interview. He said, ask people, push push the red button and ask people, why are you here? Which I did, and then I came back, and then he said, with some good ones, I said, yeah. Then He said, well, here's, and then he showed me how to edit it, and I began doing uh, news reports. A lot of it influenced by Scoop Nisker, who used to be on KSAM. We started doing right. a lot of highly montaged uh, uh, news with actualities, sounds of Nixon speeches and comedy and music right. all cut together to put it in context. But yeah, yeah I worked with Danny for years. Yeah, Danny Schechter, the news dissector. dissector. And he uh, sadly passed away uh, um, 
several years ago now, but he he went on to have a really great show uh, show about South Africa, South Africa on, on uh, PBS yeah. or, or yeah public television. Anyway, folks, if you don't if you've never heard of Danny Schechter, it's C A it's S C H E C T E R. Just Google him. It's, it was really an amazing guy. He was another you know part of that station that really had a profound influence on right. on news and media. And, and and you and you mentioned Scoop Nisker. I still remember you know his. Uh, his his slogan: If you don't like the news, go out and make, make some, some of your, your own. own. <laughs> <laughs> right, right on. You know, we took that to heart. <laughs> Absolutely. So, but you also, I mean, there are other personalities. Um, Peter Wolf, yep, uh, who, I, as I understand, uh, went by the name Woof the Woofa Goofa. The Woofa Goofa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did the all night show, and and we have you know he's in it, and uh, it it was just wild. I mean, if people are familiar with the Jay Giles band and that persona he has on stage, it really started, uh, you know, with this uh, radio show that he used to do live with phone calls on the air and right. just it was it was wild radio and particularly, you know, I mean, I guess if you put it side by side with Howard Stern or things that go on now, it might not have been so outrageous. But compared to what was then top forty radio. Right, same forty songs played over and over. It was amazing. Fast talking DJs. It was a complete, and and it's why to this day people will say to me very often. Somebody yesterday, I remember the first time I heard that station. It yeah. just, it, it was so different and spoke to a generation that was just coming into its own as a counterculture that was rejecting the traditional values of American society and grow right. up and get a good job and all that stuff. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember at KSAN, I remember my friend Glenn tuning in because they've, they've promoted in advance an opportunity to hear Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band from, from beginning to end yeah. with no words in between. Yeah. We just sat there in the car, ra- in a, listening to it on a car radio. And that's the kind of thing. It was never that, done. That was never done. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and yeah, and, and people today, you know, all this stuff that, that was happening at, at WBCN and at KCN and other, the Smothers Brothers television show. I mean, it was revolutionary at the time. Now you look at it and it's, you know, my, it's 50 years ago. It's, it's a lot has happened since then. But at that time, all of that that media i think was extremely critical in uh and for young people i mean our values were literally the, the, the our media helped develop our values and our outlook on life well and and the other thing is that there was a battleground between young people and the smothers brothers and 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 the establishment which meant uh, mainstream media and pressure from uh, the White House, from Richard Nixon to, uh, you know, quash anything in the media that was critical of him. And so, you know, one of the things that, that said in the film is that people were very aware of what was going on with the Smothers Brothers and where the lines were drawn about what you could say on a federally licensed radio station and or broadcast right. and what you could. And, and, and they consciously pushed the limits on all of them. I mean, they really saw themselves as trying to be as dangerous as possible. And right. to, we played songs with the F word uh, and got away with it, you know, and... and don't, don't say them here. N- no, no, no. <laughs> no lyrics here, no. But, um, <laughs> you know, but it, it was um, a time really of pushing the limits. And because really at the heart of it, it was about the draft and it was about the war in Vietnam and empowering young people to stand up to the government and say no. 
You know, right. we have our own rights and our own lives, and we want to live a different way. Right. Yeah, so I had an opportunity. I don't know. Have you ever seen this sure. book here, Astral Weeks? It's, I don't know, it's a so-so book, generally, in my, this is my personal opinion. But WBCN, it's called Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968 by a guy named Ryan Walsh. And WBCN is mentioned many yep. times in here. And one of the story, and one of the stories, well, the reason it's called Astral Weeks is because Van Morrison was hanging out in Boston at that time, kind of putting that record together, yeah. his first solo record after them. And this, the story that I read in here is he, he, he would send postcards to Wolf Agufa, P- Peter uh, Wolf, asking for blues songs and stuff, and then ended up... Did you meet Van Morrison back then when you were no. like a 14-year-old? No, that was before I got to the station. It was, oh, okay. That was more 68, 69. I got uh, there at 70. Okay, all right, all right. I won't go. I won't belabor that then, but I just thought it was fascinating that it was an opportunity for someone like him. Uh, he would just come in and just sit in with the DJ and oh, that was very that was very common that people would just sort of wander into the station and end up even sometimes on the air. Um, <laughs> Wolf's, Wolf had, um, uh, and I'm sure he still has it. What, what was sort of seen as one of the great R and B record collections, you know, in the world. And oftentimes, guys would come to play uh, at a local club like Club 47, which was a local, uh, you know, sort of coffee house. Right. Um, people like Money Waters or John Lee Hooker. And they would stop by his place before. and They'd be pulling out records like, hey, do you have this version of this song? And, you know, he really had a fabulous record collection. So people would sort of congregate there and listen to music at Peter's place. So this is not your first film. You have made other films. Yes. And, and, and uh, this would seem to me, on a certain level, given your background, and your, the fact that you were there so early, that this would be kind of an obvious film for you to do. How did you, how did you say, well, t- tell us about some of your other films, but also how did you decide to make this film and what was the process like for you? Sure. Uh, our last film was a different film. It was about a mental health program in New York where we followed people, uh, four people over three years, all cinema verite, uh, coming into a program called Fountain House and to show how community mental health programs can really make a difference in people's lives, wow. see it firsthand. Um, this film, I, I've jokingly said it's been in the works for 50 years because you couldn't help but be there seeing what was going on, Bruce Springsteen's first radio interview, or, and not think, oh, I should was make on, a copy. Was on this radio station? Yeah. Oh, wow. It's in the film. And, and uh, you know, the, uh, the night um, uh, Dwayne Allman and Jerry Garcia came by in one in the morning and got stoned and, <laughs> you know, were playing music for two hours. And, and you couldn't, like, yeah. well, <laughs> yeah. but, but all of us, you know, put Life magazines, you know, boxes of them in our parents' basements. And, you know, we kept that stuff. And so I started collecting that stuff just as a kid thinking someday this might be a cool thing and then really in the in the 2000s during the um uh, the run-up to the Iraq War and during the Iraq War, it just seemed to me that w- there was not the same opposition uh, to Bush and the war that there had been back in the day. And in fact, musicians or people who came forward were kind of ridiculed for it. Springsteen was ridiculed for doing a benefit for John Kerry. And um, John Kerry. And uh, so I started thinking about sort of the uh, BCN is an object lesson in how you how media can create social change, but more than that, how how everybody uh, can create social change among things they care about. And really, it was the culture, it was the music and artists and writers and everybody sort of pitching in to do what they could do together. Uh, and what media did was really facilitate that. And I think it's interesting now that we live in a world. We we stole a line from Apple for one of our early. Uh, fundraising proposals, but the line was, "It's we live in a world today where it's never been easier to communicate uh, 
but never been more difficult to be heard. And in a way, that's, I think, the, um, you know, the conundrum facing young people where, you know, any high school student can push a button on their phone and reach a half billion people through Facebook or YouTube. Right. Or, but, but how do you get heard? Um, and I think, you know, there was a lot of lessons out of that era about what it takes to be heard. It's not just clicking a like button on a Facebook page. Right. And so just listeners, if you just tuned in, we're talking to um, Bill Lichtenstein, who's the director of uh, documentary film, a two-hour documentary film, WBCN and the American Revolution. So you mentioned Ray Ray Rippin? Rippin. Rippin, yeah, who was the founder of the – so he, he really uh, kind of – uh, open the door for all of this to happen for people. He's a character, and he's somebody who almost unbelievably was unknown when we started this project. Um, in a, in another lifetime, this would be like a Coen Brothers movie <laughs> revolving around Ray Reapin. He came to Boston from Kansas City. He was a lawyer, and he was doing postgraduate work at Harvard Law School. And uh, a disciple of Andy Warhol in New York uh, asked him if he would help them negotiate a lease on a synagogue in the south end of Boston, they said they got money from the Ford Foundation and they were going to open a Boston chapter of Andy Warhol's famous filmmakers co-op in New York, in Boston. Mm -hmm. So he went over and saw the lease. It looked okay. And the guy said, of course, well, I've got other people interested. If you wanted, you got to give me a check. So he wrote a personal check for $5,000 and then found out that there was no Ford Foundation grant and, and they, oh, the money had fallen through. And so he stuck with this, you know, synagogue in the south end of Boston. And he says, you know, I got the idea with 300,000 college kids in Boston. Maybe I could make the money back by having rock music there and they opened this club the boston tea party which outside of the fillmore was the first rock club like on the east coast ah. preceded the fillmore east and all these amazing bands came there and he went from that to founding wbcn and then the boston phoenix which became this oh, the newspaper. great newspaper launched the careers of joe klein and janet maz and all these great writers craig unger um and i've often proposed that among the people who had an influence on the 60s, you know, Bill Graham, a cultural influence, that if you did the It's a Wonderful Life Jimmy Stewart game and said, what if Ray Reapman had never come to Boston and there was no BCN, there was no Phoenix, there was no Boston Tea Party, you know, what would the impact have been? I think his impact on the 60s is, is greater than almost anybody you can imagine because those institutions he created had such influence. His problem was he had great ideas. He had no management skills. His only management uh, uh, skill was to fire people if he didn't like what they did, and he'd rehire <laughs> them the next day. And so after a couple of years, he took a buyout and left Boston. But these institutions went on for a long time. He's an amazing – he's in the film, and he's just a great character. In this book, Astro Weeks, he's referred to as that he – did he really believe that he was the uh, reincarnation of a scientist from Atlantis? Oh, ever, I, I don't that? read that, but I'm not surprised. <laughs> okay. There's a scene in the film where uh, <laughs> he, he actually went around to college radio stations trying to find announcers and just walked in while people were on the air and said, I'm going to start me a station. You want to come work for me? And so one of them who did uh, go on to work for BCN recalled uh, thinking, you know, I'm a college student. I can't go work on a professional station, but I'll take a meeting. And recall walking into this apartment he had in Cambridge that was this 
gorgeous architect-designed apartment, beautiful view, except, as he recalled, there were books everywhere, but no furniture. And I'm thinking, <laughs> if this guy is so successful, why doesn't he have any furniture? <laughs> but that was Ray. That was Ray. That's great. That's great. So, so I, I don't know. I mean, this is a long time ago. I, in, the, in the production of the film, you were able to reconnect with people who are still alive, who were part of the whole yeah. the begin- very beginnings, I, I assume. Yeah, Danny was uh, still around and not passed away. Peter Simon, who was a photographer, is in the film, just passed away. And and almost as an act of God, and it's interesting because of, of who's going to be at the screening tomorrow, I'm told, um, one of the original Dishockeys was a guy named J.J. Jackson, who went on to become one of the first five MTV VJs. Oh. Um, he was the first African-American on the station, and he passed away a number of years ago. And I somehow found footage of him being interviewed about BCN that was shot. The interviews were all shot in a very stylistic way, shot exactly as if we would have shot it had he been around. And so even J.J.'s in the film. And I mention in part because I'm told that tomorrow the uh, question and answer is going to be host, uh, moderated by Alan Hunter, who was also one of the original five MTV uh, VJs oh. and worked with J.J. And okay. He just wrote a book with the other four. So there will be a Q. They'll, they'll be, we'll be able to see the film at 3.30 tomorrow at Regal Cinema, and then there'll be a Q&A afterwards. Yes. You'll be part of that, I yep. assume. Great. Um, and you're, I guess you're going to be running back there to do that a little bit of that, of that today. Is that? Yeah, the film's about halfway done now. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Keeping an eye on the clock here. We'll get you back there in time. No, no, it's a small it's town. You can, get, <laughs> you can get there pretty quickly. So, is there anything else that you want to say? Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you want to talk? I'm really. It sounds like a great film, and it was just such an important. I think you know, no matter what community that you lived in. This underground, freeform, whatever you want to call it, radio was just so instrumental in, for me personally, it was just like, it was mind-boggling, and it really did help me figure out who and what I wanted, who I was and what I wanted to be. No, I think it was very powerful. And in a way, I think BCN, this radio station, other community stations, you know, are really what the FCC intended when they originally you know, got the idea for licensing radios to serve the community, uh, licenses held in the name of the public. And, you know, this is really, I think, what radio was intended to be. Uh, and this kind of, you know, openness to the public and, and, and not as it more and more happens, you know, music stations that are programmed out of one city in the country right. for 500 stations. And, and I'm hoping, uh, well, I hope two things. I hope first that young people, uh, seeing the film, get a sense that media really can be used to create dramatic social change. And this all happened not in a very long period of time in the late 60s. Um, and also that in radio, there'll be a return to more community stations and community access and doing the kind of you know programming that you guys do here. Because it really, that's what serves listeners. And I think people listen to the station know that. And Absolutely. It's really that, important. I really appreciate that. So, Bill Lichtenstein, thanks so much. Thank you for the you time. Know, if really you got anything, you, any parting words that you have, by all means. No, just this is um, the first time that I've been to this festival. Our executive producer had come here every year when we first started working on the film. He made me promise that I would submit the film and it was selected. And so he's over the moon about uh, you know being here this year with a film. But it's just a great it's just great to be in band. It's a great festival, and and really, thank you very much for the your time. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for coming. Sure, thanks for thanks. coming to Bend. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. 
For more information and a program schedule, go to kpov.org. We value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org.